0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa At Your Service, a podcast series in which I sit down with some of the world's most inspiring minds, including today's very special guest, Dean Bouquet, a brilliant journalist who just recently ended his eight-year tenure as executive editor at The New York Times. Before I dive in with Dean, and because this is somehow the finale already, I wanted to look back at the second season of At Your Service. Even though it's been such a busy year for me, having this podcast in my life has really grounded me when I needed it most. I continue to walk away from all my conversations feeling so empowered and enlightened. Every one of my guests has been such a beacon of light for me during some of the very busy months. I've been looking back recently and thought you guys might like to reflect with me. Um, Gosh, I don't even know where to begin. I guess I'll start with when I spoke to Greta Gerwig recently. She really inspired me to think more deeply about the role failure can and should play in everyone's lives, and mine included. Let's hear a bit of that.
1: So I applied to graduate school, to three different graduate schools, for playwriting, and I didn't get into any of them. But I, I think in the end, for me, it was lucky that I, I didn't get in because I think it, um, it sped up the part where I had to bet on myself, mm. I suppose because I didn't have anyone telling me that it looked really that promising. Yeah. So it was a I didn't have a piece of paper or anything official. So um I kind of had to cobble it together. But I, I you know I, I was very lucky with the people I was in contact with in New York and who were working in theater and film and it is sort of a learn on your feet thing anyway. I mean, if I'd gotten into grad school, I'm sure it would have been wonderful too. But yeah, it was part of It your made journey. me leap.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. I I um, I enrolled to like, singing drama, like performance school, in London as well. And I got turned mm-hmm. down, and I appealed, and I got turned down again. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's and so I, crazy. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> oh my god, like why is this happening to me? Like, clearly, I'm not good enough. And I just wanted, you know, I just wanted to sing. And I was like, you know, when I play the cello and I can do this. And it was a nightmare and they still didn't want me. And I was like, fuck, like, maybe this isn't for me. But I think those, those moments of getting turned down, like you said, push you to make the leap. And then early in the season, in fact, Dan Levy spoke about the very same topic. This idea that society should be more encouraging of failure and how much better off we'd all be if failure could just be stigmatized
2: Failure is a good thing. Yep. And we're just so terrified of it because I think there's money involved. There's a commerce element that also is side by side with the artistry of, mm-hmm. of entertainment. And so this, this whole concept of like, well, if it doesn't work, well, we can't, We you know, God forbid we make another one. Because yeah. one thing means that one other thing can't or can happen. It's absolutely mind-numbing.
0: Failure it's just a part of the journey. If I think if we're constantly striving for perfection, we're never really going to get there.
2: Yeah, I think the fact that words like flaws and failure, we can have a whole other conversation about like how society has has marked those types of words as bad things.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: When culturally, if we saw flaws, if we saw failure as a positive thing, as a constructive thing, as something that makes us stronger and better and more creative and more thoughtful we would have a different relationship to it yeah, and we would absolutely. have more empathy mm-hmm. when someone does stumble. Yeah. As opposed to this culture that we're living in right now where if you don't look perfect, say the right thing all the time, do the right thing, you're somehow letting people down.
0: And then for the third one, I, uh, I had so much positive feedback from all of you about my conversation with Brian Stevenson He gave me a really powerful list about changing the world by getting proximate and uncomfortable, showcasing a compassion that really, really moved me.
3: I think the four things I would say is that I believe we do have to commit to proximity. I think you have to find ways to get closer to people who are excluded and marginalized who are disfavored. I think it's very easy in our world to isolate yourself from the problems of other people. And I just think we have to not do that. And so for me, proximity is really key. It's proximity that got me to death row as a law student and changed my career. The second thing is changing the narrative. I don't think it's enough to debate policies and issues. We have to understand the narratives underneath a lot of these policies. There are narratives in the world that are fostering bigotry and violence. And we have to change those narratives. We have to call them out. The third thing I would say is hope. I am persuaded that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. I think injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. And I think our hope is our superpower. And so I think that's the third thing. And then the last thing is that we do have to be willing to do things that are uncomfortable and inconvenient. And it's hard because I think as humans, we're biologically and psychologically programmed to do what's comfortable. We Mm -hmm. like comfort. And there's nothing wrong with comfort. But it does mean that we're going to have to make a commitment. We're going to have to make a choice, a decision to do the uncomfortable if we're actually going to advance issues that need Uh, to be advanced. But I think when we get proximate, when we change narratives, when we stay hopeful and when we commit to doing uncomfortable things, we position ourselves to be people who make a difference in the communities where we live, places where we uh, spend our time in the world, which is ultimately the goal. We kicked off this season with the amazing
0: Monica Lewinsky, who told me about the decision behind re-entering the public eye more than a decade after retreating from it. And I was so blown away by her resilience and the ways in which she turned what could have been a legacy of public humiliation into the power to change and save other lives.
4: You know how change usually comes from a number of moments that sort of start forming and eventually come together and collide. And um, mm-hmm. I think that for me, as I talked a bit about in the TED Talk, there there was a moment when Tyler Clementi, who was an 18-year-old freshman at Rutgers University, and he had been videotaped, uh, secretly videotaped, being intimate with another man by his roommate, and it was, you know, threatened to be exposed online, and the shame and humiliation he felt from that led him days later to take his own life. And it became a national news story, and... Um, my mom and I were discussing it. I was on a drive home, you know, experiencing her or watching her process what had happened to Tyler and the pain and anguish of his family. That really put my mom back in 98. And I sort of saw through her lens um, in a different way, just the, the the fear and panic, you know, that she had had. And my dad as well, that they had had about me that, that worry of me taking my own life, being, you know, publicly humiliated to death. So um, I think that it was at that point that I started to realize, too, that that with the advent of the Internet and now social media had, you know, had been born that that there were these opportunities, that public shaming was now going to be something that more and more people would start to experience. It wasn't just for people who made mistakes, you know, or public people, that, that we were starting to feast on private people's moments that, you know, could bring shame and humiliation. And I think that at that point, I thought, okay, there might be a place, you know, as a poster child for having survived public humiliation. There might be there might be a place for my voice. And I think that happened alongside a lot of deep healing work that I had started mm. to do that allowed me to be in a place where I could do that, where I could take the risks of kind of quote-unquote coming back out. And for my final one, and what I promise is still a
0: total pinch me moment, I never expected Pedro Almodovar to tell me, of all people, that I was an inspiration from one of the scenes in one of his recent movies that he did and i'm still blushing
2: even just thinking about it there is a sequence where penelope cruz is in a photo session and is taking pictures of a transsexual and the transsexual woman said this is the first time that a female journal give me the cover and you know one of the poses that i said to this girl to imitate it was you in what beautiful picture when you are making Pepe Jean publicity, that you are in Jean, dile que está como apoyada en las <laughs> rodillas, el torso para atrás. So you can watch the film again. There's a, he's talking about a photograph where you're on your knees,
5: sort of leaning back with your arm above your head, and we can see your belly button. And the actress actually duplicates uh, this image. That's
0: unbelievable.
2: Do you remember that picture for Pepe Jean?
5: yes
0: yes i remember i just can't i can't believe i can't believe what you're telling me i um i've gone very hot now and it's it's very oh. incredible it's really been a season i'll always remember you can listen to all these episodes in full and other interviews with inspiring names in this podcast feed and we're not done just yet Please stay with me through this very short break, after which I'll be back with this week's guest, Dean Bouquet. Welcome back. My guest this week, Dean Bouquet, is newly retired from one of the most prestigious and challenging jobs in all of media. During his eight years as the New York Times executive editor... A role more commonly known as editor in chief, Dean championed massive, cultural shifting stories on topics like the global effects of climate change, the presidency of Donald Trump, the fall of Harvey Weinstein and the ensuing Me Too movement, and the COVID 19 pandemic. During his tenure, Dean helped bring the paper 22 Pulitzer Prizes, the most of any top editor in decades. When he became executive editor in 2014, the Times had less than a million digital subscribers. This year, shortly after Dean's retirement, The Times reported a remarkable 8.6 million paid digital subscribers. All in all, not bad for an industry commonly thought to have its heyday in the rearview mirror. But Dean has always had journalism in his sights. Born and raised in New Orleans as one of five boys, the son of restaurateurs who owned a Creole restaurant in town called Eddie's. Dean received a scholarship to study English at Columbia University, but dropped out shortly before graduating. He took up an internship at a New Orleans Daily Paper, The State's Item, and the rest is literally in the history books. His career, which started in reporting before shifting to editing, has taken him to the Times-Picayune, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, and the LA Times, where he was also executive editor. Though he stepped down from the top of the New York Times masthead earlier this year, he's remained on staff to lead a local investigative fellowship dedicated to help counter a crisis in local news, a cause he's incredibly passionate about. There's so much more I could say about Dean and his exceptional career, but I'd rather you hear it directly from him. During our conversation, I had the chance to ask him about some of the massive New York Times stories he helped edit, as well as the future of the media industry, some of the stories making headlines right now, and much, much more. Settle in for one of my favorite interviews of the season, and please welcome this week's At Your Service
5: guest, Dean Bouquet.
0: Hi, Dean, how are you?
5: Good, thank you for having me. This will be fun.
0: Thank you for doing this. I I know you're a very, very busy man, so I really appreciate you of course. taking the time and doing this with me. Are you in New York right now?
5: I'm in New York. I go back and forth between New York and Los Angeles, but I happen to be in New York right now.
0: Okay, nice. Well, I'm in uh, Los
5: Angeles. and it's... Well, you are. I was in Los Angeles till two nights ago. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's like, uh, it's rainy New York, London weather. It's like a, a mix. So you're not missing out on any sunshine today. <gasps> Again, thank you so much for doing this. Mm-hmm. I've I've been really, really... Excited to speak to you. And I kind of want to start from um, from the beginning. I want to start with your journalism roots a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Becoming executive editor of the New York Times, which is the top job at arguably <laughs> the most respected newspaper on the planet. You know, it's no ordinary career journey. And particularly hitting a milestone in being the paper's first ever black executive editor. Right. You got your start in local newsrooms in New Orleans, your hometown, and I also read that you left college after three years without a diploma because you knew you wanted to pursue journalism and you just wanted to get right into it. When did the journalism bug first bite and when did you know it was like it was going to be your life's calling?
5: You know, it was an accident. Um, I grew up in New Orleans, as you said, and I'd never been outside of New Orleans or Mississippi, but I I knew I wanted to live someplace else, see something else. So I, I applied to Columbia and got in. <laughs> I don't think I can get in today. Um, <laughs> and I was terribly homesick. All of my friends stayed in New Orleans. And I was just desperate to spend a little bit more time in New Orleans. So I applied for a, an internship at the, New, the afternoon paper in New Orleans, D- mainly because it was a job. It was like a respectable way to take a semester off from school. And I fell in love with it from the very beginning. It struck every chord in me, curiosity, a desire to sort of speak truth to power, the camaraderie of a newsroom. I mean, it was a different era. Everybody smoked cigarettes in the newsroom, but everybody was close, and you made your friendships in the newsroom. And it was just magical, and I, I couldn't go back. I tried to go back to college, but after that, it was, it was just the most exciting adrenaline rush that I'd ever experienced. And I also felt like I was doing something big and important too.
0: I love that. That's, yeah, I guess, you know, when you, when you find something that you love, it, it no longer feels like work. It just kind of sweeps you up. And that's right. It becomes everything that you, I don't know, that you believe in and that you want to see in the world as well. And I think that's really cool. You, you first joined the New York Times in 1990, and then for a second time in 2006 after a monumental Pulitzer Prize winning career. You then became the executive editor in 2014, something I imagine felt like the ultimate prize in journalism. Can you tell me, from your perspective, what you think is so special about the New York Times?
5: You know, a former New York Times editor said once that if the New York Times didn't exist, nobody would build it again. It's unimaginable. It cares more about journalism than profits, it's controlled by a an altruistic family that would rather see the paper continue and thrive than get rich. It has over generations built a global reach. It's just a special, different place. And I say that as somebody who has loved other newspapers. It's a very unique institution, and with with the flaws of, of any institution. And it has tremendous influence and power, which is sometimes a little scary. But for me, if you had told me 40 years ago, 10 years ago, that I was going to become editor of the New York Times. That, that would have been, un- I mean, I didn't even r- barely heard of the New York Times when I was a kid. Certainly didn't read the New York Times as a kid. But it felt like you had a very high calling when you ran the New York Times. It felt like you had tremendous responsibility. Your mistakes hurt bad, and your successes, like the, you know, sparking, helping to spark the Me Too movement, felt Fantastic and powerful, and like you made lasting change. No, it's a it's a truly, <laughs> it's hard to even describe.
0: It's, it's it's incredible. You started your your tenure as executive editor when President Obama was in the White House, mm-hmm. and when you left earlier this year, democracy was under attack on the heels of the January sixth insurrection, with the conversation in the United States turning to quote unquote a stolen election, which of course is a total falsehood. Right, President Trump says that he will run again in 2024. And I, I wonder if you're at the helm of the New York Times now, how would you be preparing your newsroom for this potential third Trump run and second presidency? And how would it differ from his first term in office?
5: Well, the first time he ran, we, and it was a mistake, we didn't take him seriously enough. Mm. I think we thought, you know, he'd, he'd come up in New York real estate and he was sort of like a flamboyant, even sometimes clownish figure
0: yeah and a reality star
5: yes that's right i don't th- i don't we didn't think he could win and i don't think we took him seriously till till the end we investigated and we wrote a lot of stories about his his abusive women we wrote a lot of stories about his business but i i remember not thinking he could win i think that we would regard him very differently today we would regard him as somebody who could win I also think that he he challenged us in really interesting ways. I mean, all politicians lie to some degree, (laughs) but I think there's no question that Trump lied and stretched the truth to a greater degree than any of his predecessors. And I think we understand that better now. And I think we would be much, much, I mean, I won't be running the Times then, but I think we'll be much, much more ready to deal with that and to confront that and to write about that clearly.
0: Putting Trump to the side, and I think we mm-hmm. should do that more often. I, uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to spend some time asking you about a few of like the major stories that you spearheaded um, at the times. Like I'd love to know the stories that you'd like to be remembered for and the yeah. stories that you think in some way brought a larger conversation.
5: Well, the story that I, and I didn't expect this to happen, the story that, that I most... I think, will be remembered for and started the largest conversation was the Harvey Weinstein story, Mm -hmm. um, which has just been made into a movie called She Said. I don't think any of us, I mean, I was the executive editor and I was deeply involved in, in editing and working with the reporters on the story. I don't think any of us thought it would have the dramatic impact on the world. I mean, I thought we had a really good story, but to watch that story reverberate across the country and around the world and to see the results and to see the questions being raised about other men and to see the conversation it sparked. I think that's one of those like once in a lifetime newspaper stories that actually changes the world. People had discussions after that story that they weren't having before. And I think it will have a great impact. Mm -hmm. I also think that a story we did last year where we proved that some of the American drone strikes actually killed civilians, was a really important story. Because I think that the drone program, starting with the Bush administration and continuing to the Obama administration, was expanded. And people thought they had discovered, like, a perfect way to wage war if you're, if you're America, right? No American soldiers get killed. You have this great technology. And I think we proved last year in this amazing series of stories by this wonderful freelancer who, who we brought on to staff that that, in fact, is not true, that civilians were killed. We proved it with technology. We proved it with reporting. And I think, it. I hope that that story changes the way Americans think about war and forces a conversation about what modernized warfare looks like and that, in fact, there is no way to modernize yourself out of the moral questions of war. And I think that that story should, I hope that story has lasting impact as well.
0: To touch on the Harvey Weinstein story to begin with, I mean, that was a bombshell Mm -hmm. expose. It was so much investigative journalism and it was incredibly culture shifting. I mean, people still, it's like a domino effect of that story coming out that people have found the strength, women have found the strength to really be able to to speak up against their oppressor. What was it like behind the scenes to go against one of Hollywood's biggest bullies in like what were some of the problems that you and and your writers faced?
5: The writers faced the biggest problem because it was convincing women to talk about these humiliations in their lives that had never they had never talked about. And some of them were true humiliations. Um, women whose careers were thwarted, women who, you know, whose lives were changed by their encounters with Harvey Weinstein. Inside the newsroom, he was so used to, most people don't know this. Harvey Weinstein was a big advertiser of the New York Times, though that never influenced anything. It never does. We keep that separate. But he call, he kept calling me because he wanted to talk and I, he wanted to talk like big guy to big guy.
0: <laughs> Did you take that call?
5: I, I answered the phone because I answered my own phone okay.
0: <laughs> and he said
5: and it's captured in the, in the movie. he said, "Di I'd like to talk to you?" And I said, "No, you talk to the reporters." Partly, the reporters were women, and I, I could tell he wanted to talk to, like, a big guy. Mm. And I said, no, you, you talk to the reporters. You know, you and I are not going to have the kind of relationship where you talk to me around my reporters' backs. Talk to my reporters. And he kept trying. And I think he just thought that's the way he had operated in Hollywood. You know, a powerful guy picks up the phone, talks to another powerful guy. And I didn't, I don't want to have that kind of power. Throughout my, I, I think my upbringing and the fact that I didn't grow up with power has always made me suspicious of power, even though I guess you could make the case I have power. But I never wanted to be part of the club, and Harvey was trying to lure me into the club, and I didn't want to have that kind of conversation with him. Did I know that this story was gonna, like, land like a bombshell? Oh, God, no. (laughs) I thought, I mean, we were racing to beat the New Yorker. Ronan Farrow, who's terrific, was working on a story. And I thought, oh my God, we gotta beat the New Yorker. And we beat them, thank God though they did a great story too and no i didn't think it was going to have this impact
0: can you take us behind the curtain a little bit on the on the Weinstein story like can you remember when Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey brought the story to you i'm just so fascinated to know what the what the process of it and and what it looked like internally
1: yeah
5: well it started actually with the Bill O'Reilly story we did a story about Bill O'Reilly and the huge number of settlements he had paid for women who felt mistreated. And that opened up a whole new world of reporting for us. It's really hard to prove sexual abuse or, or allegations of sexual harassment because the woman makes a claim, the guy denies it. Discovering that there were settlements opened a whole new line of reporting for us. So after that story... I got a group of editors together, Rebecca Corbett and Matt, the great Matt Purdy, who's our investigations editor, and Jody Cantor. And we said, we've now learned how to do something different. Where else can we take this? And Jody came back within a couple weeks and said, Hollywood. And she said, I'm already hearing stuff about Harvey Weinstein. And that was like, that was the moment. And then Megan Toohey later joined us. And I remember thinking in all the discussions, because I would meet with them regularly, this is going to be a hard story to get. And in fact, we kept getting close, but not there. We had off-the-record stories from women, but we didn't have documentation. We didn't have the settlements. Until Jody came back from this trip to London after interviewing this courageous woman, and it's the scene is described over 10 minutes in, um, in the movie, she said. And she comes back with the first set of documents. And it was like that was the moment we knew we had it. And that was the moment we knew it was going to be reportable. And then the last moment, if I can describe it, we still didn't have enough women on the record. We were going to go with the story anyway. And Jody and Megan rightly argued that it would be great to have the voices, the voice of a movie star. My view was, let's just get this story in the paper. And I remember the moment Jody got a call from Ashley Judd, and Ashley Judd said she would go on the record. And Jody was standing in the newsroom surrounded by a bunch of us, and she started to cry. And I had a lump in my throat, because it meant that we were going to have now a very human and powerful story.
0: Wow. I, I, I have to ask, um, what was it like to see yourself on the big screen? In the, in the movie she said... Which is now actually in cinemas. How did that feel?
5: It was a little weird to have to see another person called Dean, (laughs) Um, but he did a great. He's a great actor. He did a great job. It was very funny. He used he used my office. I only met him at the New York premiere. He used so we never talked in advance. Um, He used my office. The scenes that are um, in the movie are accurate. My conversations with Harvey Weinstein and the lawyers. In fact, there were a little. Nastier on my part than, than the actor, which was fine. <laughs> you know, they made a brilliant choice in that movie, I have to say, which I just thought was brilliant and fair and right. They centered the stories of the women reporters and their editors, and I just thought that was fantastic.
0: That's good. It's good when the, when the film portrays it in a way that you, that you find to be correct. Yeah. We'll be right back. Surely one of the defining stories of your tenure and of your in my lifetime is is climate change as well. Yeah. How do you cover a story about potential planetary collapse <laughs> and keep it fresh and interesting and urgent day in and day out?
5: And the first decision we made, I was the executive editor for eight years, so we dramatically expanded our climate team to the point I'm, I'm sure we have the biggest climate team of any of the major newspapers. But... We did one thing that I thought was, it wasn't my idea, it was the editor's idea. She decided to tell the story visually as, as often as possible. And I thought that was brilliant, and I will not take credit for it. So she would show, I mean, she presented these, these wonderful graphics and videos that really showed the impact of climate change in a much more powerful way than you could ever describe in words, Right. And I think that made a huge difference. And I think she pioneered that work. A a lot of people do that work now. But I think our climate team first started doing it. It's hard. Climate is one of those stories that it is an existential story. It is one of the most powerful stories of our time. But it's still hard. You know, every month there's a new study that says this much more is being lost. And I think people get used to that. One of the great challenges of journalism of daily journalism, is how to tell the most powerful stories day in and day out in a way that they resonate. And climate change may be the most powerful example of that.
0: With those stories that we just mentioned in mind, can you walk me through the process of prioritizing stories like Mm
5: -hmm.
0: choosing which pieces and topics got prime real estate on page one or the homepage or the alerts that were sent out from the New York Times app?
5: Yeah. How does that all happen? It's a very unscientific, um, <laughs> and it's changed dramatically with the with the arrival of digital journalism. I mean, it's a mix of a lot of it is gut. News organizations have a character, like our character is serious. And I don't mean that to denigrate the news organizations that have a different character. I mean, the Washington Post, which, which is one of the, mo- the great newspapers, and I love it, Their focus is on politics. So when they sit at the table and make decisions about what gets the most play, they're going to lean a little bit more toward politics. Our focus is like probably a little more international news and politics. So we might, I mean, on any given day, we might lean more toward, you know, the protests in China. But in a nitty-gritty way, what happens is we have a morning meeting that's like the most exciting meeting of the day. It's like the thing I miss most about not being editor anymore is that meeting. Because all of the department heads come into a room and they talk about what their best stories are. And you feel like you're getting like a, you know, a one-hour seminar from a lot of smart people. You know, the culture editor gets up and says, you know, a there's a new play and it's fantastic and it's the best thing we've ever seen. The foreign editor gets up and says the China protests have expanded. And, you know, the government is going to have to make changes in its COVID policies. And then the Washington bureau chief gets up and says, well, you know, Biden is going to do this with student loans. And, then, and it's like on and on. And you listen to all these things. Mm. It's really exciting. And then you everybody leaves, and then a small number of us say, okay, let's talk about this, right? And then we debate. Somebody says, well, God, geez, come on, student loan story, that's the biggest story, right? Somebody else might say, no, come on, the China protest, that might be the biggest story. In the print era, that was a do-or-die discussion because you you can only lead with one story. The digital era, you can say, well, look, let's lead with China now. It's the right time of day. And then we can elevate the student loan story later in the day. But a lot of it is gut. You know, the, the best argument, by the way, for having diverse voices in a newsroom is you don't want that decision to be made by like 10 white guys <laughs> all of the same age. Of course. So when we have those debates, those debates are, you know, it's me. I'm obviously not a white guy. There are women. And it's just like this. from this collective mm. comes this judgment, which sometimes... It's flawed. There's nothing more flawed than a daily news report, right? Because what I just described is a lot of really well-meaning, smart people struggling to make the decision of the day. And it's really exciting.
0: It sounds really exciting. I mean, we do something at Service 95 at a very different capacity. But every Tuesday, you know, we have our meetings and we sit down and we talk about ideas that we want to put in for our newsletter. And so that's one of my favorite
5: parts of trying. You should come to our meeting sometime. I
0: would absolutely love to. I would
5: love yeah, that. I'll get you an invitation. Okay.
0: Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> like uh, like so many people, I uh, I celebrated the publication of Nicole Hannah Jones's 1619 Project. Yeah. In the New York Times,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I learned so much from it. It was something that we also covered on our on our newsletter. Can you describe the project and all its Spin-offs to our listeners who may not be familiar and, yeah. and how involved were you in the development and did you take much persuading?
5: Yeah. The 1619 Project, which really was the baby of Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's a reporter for the magazine of the New York Times, was an attempt to tell the story of American history with a little bit of a different perspective from the perspective of black people and what history looked like from the perspective of black people. And it centered the black point of view in American history, which was courageous, heroic, and I think sparked a real debate and discussion about what history looks like from the perspective of other people. It was also deeply reported. Nicole is brilliant and has become not just a great reporter, but a little bit of a historian herself. And I think that was challenging and provocative work. I hired Nicole, and I remember the the interview, the job interview, in which she said to me, um, are you sure you're going to let me do the kind of work that I want to do? And I said, of course I am. You think I'm an idiot? I'm not going to let you do the kind of work you came here to do? Why would I hire you first? She and her editor at the magazine conceived of the project before they brought it to me, which happens all the time at the paper. Like you bring, you bring, You sort of come up with the nuts and bolts. It took no persuading. I thought it was a brilliant concept. I thought it was a brilliant idea. I thought it was a provocative magazine idea. And the magazine should be provocative. The magazine should spark thinking in a way that the news pages don't. And I remember when Nicole and Jake Silverstein, who was her editor, and Alana Silverman, who was her actual line editor, walked me through the pages, the layouts, This was before the type was actually in, and the pictures, and they explained to me what was going to be there, the writers they had attracted, many of whom I'd heard of. And I thought, oh my God, this is just, this is brilliant. And I think that too, actually, I think sparked a really provocative discussion. And the fact that it was in the pages of the New York Times, which some people have seemed to try to want to divorce it from the New York Times because they think the New York Times is this sort of establishment News organization, and here was this magazine piece that was actually challenging establishment history. I think the fact that it was in our pages gave it more power.
0: It's incredible. I mean, and the magnitude of the project as well—from the essays to the podcast to the book—it's
5: yeah,
0: it's really, really remarkable work. But we've we've also seen backlash against the sixteen nineteen project yeah. from some corners of the Republican Party. You know, culminating. Yeah in it being banned in Florida schools and colleges, in Ron DeSantis' Stop the Woke bill. Yeah. How worried are you about whether this kind of journalism can survive, let alone thrive under Trump or a DeSantis presidency?
5: I'll quickly tell you a story that I told when I introduced Nicole at the launch party for the 1619 Project, very quickly. I grew up in, in Louisiana, in New Orleans, I was born in 1956, so I grew up in the 60s. And the, all of the books, the history books in my school library, my grade school library, which was an all-black Catholic school in New Orleans in a working class, to poor neighborhood, they were biographies of Civil War generals. So I grew up thinking Robert E. Lee was a hero. I grew up thinking that the Civil Civil War generals were heroes. They were heroic, you know, and I would watch movies as a very little kid, six or seven, and I was cheering for the Confederacy because those are the books that were put in front of me. There might have been a Ulysses Grant book in there somewhere, but those are the books that were put that were offered to our school. The significance of Nicole's, of the 1619 Project, and, and, and Nicole and her collaborators, is they put a history in front of the kid that I was that's very different. And that changes the way you look at the country, but also makes you no less proud of the country. But it makes you understand that, for me, Robert E. Lee should not be my hero. Mm-hmm. And I think that making sure that kids see that is vital. If I had seen that as a child, that would have changed my worldview. I am not worried, actually, that those kinds of stories won't be told. I think the cat is out of the bag. And I know that politicians will push. Some politicians don't want a full-bodied portrait of America to be discussed. But American history is complicated. All history is complicated and nuanced and troubled. There's no clean, pure history. And I think that Nicole started a discussion that I don't think is going to go away. And I don't think that anybody's going to stop that train. There may be bumps. There may be legislation that slows it down. But I think in the era of social media, when people have access to information, and when mainstream news organizations like the New York Times do that kind of work, I'm not worried. I think that's changed the discussion in a profound way.
0: That feels that um, feels really reassuring to hear <laughs> you say that because I feel like it's a scary time with librarians being sure it is. You know, cut off their jobs and books being taken off bookshelves. But I think you're you're absolutely right in the sense that you know, thank God for the internet also. Yeah. That there's no going back on things that we already know.
5: This has happened before in history, right? This has happened mm. before in history where, you know, um, Americans should, I mean, Nicole once said, "I can't now I can't remember if she said this to me or if she said it in writing, that black people are among the most patriotic. And she's right. And I don't think Nicole's work or the work of her collaborators were about not loving America. I think they're about, you know, wanting the full story of America told in all of its, you know, humility, warts. To me, that's the essence of journalism. When full, complete, independent stories are told, people embrace the richness. I believe that people that people accept rich stories when they're delivered to them.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that we talk about a topic that overlaps your world and mine last year. Mm-hmm. In 2021, Rabbi Shmuley Boteik and the organization he leads, which is the World Values Network, paid for a full page advertisement on page A5 of the New York Times. And this advert featured my face alongside the faces of Gigi and Bella Hadid, all superimposed over an image of rockets. And the intention of the ad was, was clear, you know, in response to our belief about human rights and that they're... Universal and apply to Israelis and Palestinians, Smoley attempted to link us to terrorism, to genocide and to anti-Semitism. And while I'm totally mindful of the church and state divide that exists between the editorial and the advertising departments of the New York Times, the size and the appearance of the advert next to next to the other stories, certainly at, at least to my eye and and to many others too, you know, made it seem like the story, was sanctioned and commissioned by the paper and I know you personally didn't make the call to allow yeah. the ad print space but but since you're here on the podcast with me I would really <laughs> really welcome the opportunity to talk about it to, yeah. to the degree that you can speak to this. Yeah. How could the New York Times publish something so damaging and and so dangerous well so potentially dangerous to mm-hmm. those who are targeted?
5: You know, I do I'm going to I'm going to honor church and state and it's probably worth Talking about the church and state between us and advertising for a beat, because it's it's so important about it, you know who we are. I can obviously sense the pain this caused you, and I I can obviously sense and acknowledge how difficult that must have been for you. But I always believed, as the executive editor, that we should have no input in advertising, even advertising that attacked the newsroom. Which sometimes we published advertising that attacked the newsroom. I just thought that if we get into the business in the newsroom of having impact on ads, you know, we do investigative stories about people who advertise. We do investigative stories about big oil companies who advertise. We do investigative stories about governments that advertise. So I'm I'm probably going to be hesitant to talk about it much other than to obviously say this was difficult for you, because I, I so honor the church and state divide, and I so feel like if I ever cross, step into that line at all, I'm opening the door to to difficulties and to even possibly ethical breaches. Not I'm not talking about yours as an ethical breach, but it's like the Harvey Weinstein story. Nobody ever came to me and said, In fact, I'm not even sure I understood how big an advertiser he was until after the stories ran. I hope you understand that.
0: Yeah, of course I understand. And like I said, I I respect the the church and state divide between the two. But, you know, I I, I then, you know, I was going in and reading other articles. And, you know, I I was just wondering for the New York Times, what is the process of vetting ads like that? You know, I, I read an older, but I think still... Relevant Q and A, you know, with the then director of advertising acceptability, and he said that you only decline or alter an opinion when the message is clearly discriminatory, illegal, right. libelous, or hate speech. And I just can't get it in my head how that ad didn't fall into that yeah into that category.
5: Have you spoken with them, by the way, with the advertising department?
0: No, I I have not.
5: You ought to, because there is there is a process. Um, in fact, to show you how separate we are, mm. one day, when I became executive editor, the then publisher, the father of the current publisher, had only three direct reports, me, the head of the opinion page, and this one guy who, who managed advertising acceptability. You should talk to them about it. But I, I just know so little a, a, about mm. it. And, and sometimes, look, just for the record, sometimes newspapers run ads that are painful for the journalist too. I mean, I don't know what would have happened if Harvey Weinstein had wanted to run a full-page ad. And he, I don't think at that point he could run one attacking us, but he could have run a full-page ad, you know, extolling his great career. And I don't know what would have happened in that case, but I, nobody would have called me or asked me about it.
1: Mm.
0: Thank you for hearing me out.
5: Of course, of course.
0: I uh, I guess all I all I ever really wanted to do after like the ad was published was just to have this sort of dialogue with someone at the Times.
5: I'm happy to have it. You
0: know, to let them know how it affected me. So I, I appreciate you engaging. Of course. While we're in a break, why don't you take a moment to subscribe for free to At Your Service's newsletter, Service 95, at www.service95.com. We'll be right back. I want to shift topics Mm -hmm. a little bit lighter. Um, (laughs) The the language that we use in discussing the stories of the day is is so important now more than ever. And and I feel like it attracts a ton of scrutiny and questions like what, if at all, do you use Latinx? When do you capitalize black? Mm -hmm. How do you define a woman? Mm -hmm. You know, when do you call out something an elected official says is a lie and I guess what what I'm trying to say is, you know, when the words themselves are driving the news,
5: how do you decide which ones to use? Those are like the hardest discussions, you know. I mean, when I started in journalism, there were still newspapers that used the word Negro. And I remember wandering into the morgue of the Times-Picayune when I was there, and there was terrible stuff in the morgues, you know, use, use of language. And this was like a mainstream American newspaper, right? I think that you have to do two things. You have to acknowledge that society changes and language has to change with society. But you also have to make sure that you're not being pushed to change by a small group of vocal critics. For instance, when we debate using words like Latinx, there are many members in the Latino community who don't accept that and then there's some who do. That's complicated, right? (laughs) You don't wanna be disrespectful. On the other hand, you don't wanna be pushed into using language that a very small minority of people are embracing until it becomes embraced by the larger society. So those are really difficult, tricky. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Jesse Jackson first said, we should not use black, but we should use African-American. I don't even know how many years ago this was. I was a young reporter. It started a very powerful debate in the black community that I witnessed with my parents. My parents' reaction was, no, we're black. Then The younger generation said, no, we like this African-American thing. It acknowledges our history. And it was like a full-bodied debate. If you had started using African-American from the very beginning... I think you would have alienated a lot of black people who didn't want to be called African American who said, I came here, I've been here for generations. Over time it settled in and it became not only accepted but, you know, the more common usage. So I think that you do have to wait a little bit before some of the language actually takes hold in a larger community, if that makes sense.
0: Speaking of community Mm -hmm. and I guess the online community as well. I uh, I know that you have not been Twitter's biggest fan <laughs> over the years and you've even criticized the platform and even though I did notice that you've returned to the platform after an absence of about eight years.
5: Yes, that's right.
0: Um, I mean, what a time to return. With, um,
5: <laughs> it had nothing to do with Musk. Yeah.
0: <laughs> with people wondering whether this is like the end of Twitter. Right. You know, how, how do you view it's Legacy and its potential absence, you know, and yeah. all the ways that it could be bad for journalism. Yeah. And it often fostered misinformation. And I feel like now, under Elon Musk, it's fostering a lot of misinformation. You know, will, will it also make it harder for people to access their news and, and for journalists to break stories?
5: Twitter is, just for the record, Twitter is largely, has largely been good. And social media, period, right? I mean, social media allows a gay kid in Louisiana to find out that he's not alone or she's not alone. Social media has brought the world together, and Twitter has allowed thoughtful critics to criticize big institutions like the New York Times that, frankly, sometimes should be listening to the criticism. So, overall, my view of Twitter is not as negative as people think, but I do think that Twitter had too big an influence on journalists. I think journalists spend too much time on Twitter. I look at some of the most powerful, wonderful, brilliant reporters in America spending all their time on Twitter fighting people, and I'm like, stop fighting people, go do reporting. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's it's a it's been a big distraction for a lot. reporting is the most important kind of journalism. You can convince yourself that Twitter is your audience. It is not. It's a part of your audience, and it should be balanced against the rest of your audience. But it's not your audience. And if you start writing for Twitter, and if you start trying to make Twitter happy, which a lot of journalists admit to me they do, or you try not to make Twitter mad or you try to be influenced by media Twitter and you sort of overreact to everything, I think, by and large, that skews journalism. And it creates like a collective mindset that keeps people from asking really hard questions about the world, right? It keeps people from the best journalism asks hard questions and understands that while there are settled questions in the world... Racism is settled. Anti-Semitism is settled. A lot of questions are not settled. And a lot of questions are really, really difficult. You know, a lot of questions, how to deal with poverty is really complicated. And I think Twitter pushes you away from complicated solutions and and grappling with complicated questions. And that's my complaint about, about Twitter. It has brought many good things to the world. But I wanted the journalists who worked for me to also understand it brought things that were not so good and they needed to strike the balance. And if they didn't want to be on Twitter, they didn't have to be on Twitter, which is why I'm not on Twitter, <laughs> except that one time.
0: <laughs> Apart from that one time, yeah, mm. that's, that's, um, that's really interesting. I, uh, I guess as someone who's nearing the one year mark of my Service 95 newsletter and, and this very podcast, Mm -hmm. I'd be remiss not to ask you for some guidance on sustainability and success in the media industry. And what, if anything, have you looked to as your guiding ethos in your career? And what should I continue to keep in mind as I take Service 95 into the next phases of its life?
5: First off, I, I love the fact that you grapple with these really difficult issues. In fact, the most important thing, I think, for sustainability is to not be afraid to grapple with hard issues and to be a little open-minded sometimes about about the hardest issues and to listen. I think sustainability is when readers or listeners, in this case, are surprised so that when you talk to people, and I'm not talking about trotting out, you know, anti-Semites and racists, but I'm talking about bringing in people who might disagree with you, who might expand your worldview, you know, they're, they're very smart, thoughtful people who disagree with with me about very important issues, right? Like, I, you know, my mother lost her house in Katrina. I don't know what the right way to repair New Orleans is after Katrina. It's not just money. It's a really complicated issue. Mm-hmm. I would just say take on complicated issues. People are smarter than we give them credit for. And listen, I think that's the biggest advice I'd give to anybody. There's less and less... Curious probing journalism around. So the more of it you can do that to me is the height of journalism.
0: Thank you. That's definitely something that I think is important. Like you said, even in the in the newsroom is to have those debates, to have those conversations, to have different perspectives thrown at you so you can get the best possible story. So that's right. Yeah, I guess about staying curious and, and surrounding yourself with people who don't necessarily always agree with you, I think is is really, really good advice. Dean earlier this year you retired as executive editor but you're still working for the New York Times. Yep. And in your new role you're leading an investigative fellowship in which you'll teach young journalists how to do reporting work on on a local level. And you said when it was announced that you wanted to you wanted the team to be looking at institutions in places like Oklahoma and Louisiana. And I want to end by asking you why do we now more than ever need good local investigative reporting and how can i and people invested in the future of the truth help support those endeavors
5: i think that great local newspapers have been gutted by the economics of frankly the journalism world we live in i mean i spent a week with a couple of colleagues in jackson mississippi and you know the jackson clarion ledger which once had two or three hundred people in its newsroom now is like 15. and i think it's hard to investigative reporting takes a long time it's risky When we started the Harvey Weinstein story, we didn't know what we were going to come up with. We might have come up with nothing if if those courageous women had not talked to us. Mm. So it's hard to convince small newsrooms to take big risks. So my goal is to help them. Edit the stories, spend time with them, help them conceive stories to take big risks. If we don't do it, entire communities will have no probing, no accountability journalism, local communities. No calling out truth. No calling out powerful people when they screw up. And I think that if we don't have that, think about it. It influences national politics. It influences national elections. It influences how elections are called around the world. It influences who gets to be powerful locally. So that to me is vital. What can people do? Call attention to it. Invite on the program one day a couple of editors for... um, smaller news organizations to talk a little bit about how they, how they cope, how they manage. Maybe that'll help them raise money. Maybe it'll help their owners feel more pride in what they do. Call attention to their plight as much as you can. Call attention to their stories. If like the Tampa Tribune breaks a big story or the Jackson Clarion ledger breaks a big story and if there's a way for you to call attention to it, God, those newsrooms would levitate if somebody with your, your influence noticed their work.
0: Okay, well that's something to that's something to keep in mind. I can imagine for for small newspapers it is quite hard to break through, especially with the power of the big ones. That's right. Dean, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um
5: So, have I. I, so uh,
0: have I. I I like to end my conversations by asking for a couple of recommendation lists from my guests. Mm-hmm. You grew up the son of a New Orleans restaurateur, and I'd love to know what are the six best New Orleans restaurants, ones that people can still visit today that you love.
5: Okay. Okay. Well, my brother's family, because my father died and so his restaurants closed, runs a little neighborhood restaurant called Lil Dizzy's. So I always recommend Lil Dizzy's. I love Lil Dizzy's. I love Dookie Chase, which is in the neighborhood I grew up in New Orleans. I love Galatois and Commander's Palace for a little bit grander meals. And like a little, another little neighborhood tuck-the-way place, I like a little place called Laiouza's, which is near the New Orleans racetrack. And I'm sure I'm missing some because I haven't been home in a couple of years, but that's my, that's my list. You can't go wrong with any of those.
0: Amazing. Well, I look forward to going and visiting and trying those out. Dean, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This has been wonderful.
5: Thank you so much, too.
0: Thanks again to all of you for tuning in, and thank you to Dean for joining me on our Season 2 finale. Between this podcast and our Service 95 newsletter, I've been thinking a lot about the power of media lately. So to get to speak with Dean about his prolific career and the stories he worked on that changed the world remains a highlight of my year. For those wanting more, Dean generously provided a list of his favorite news sources, which you can find in this week's issue of Service 95 our free weekly newsletter available to subscribers via service95.com. At the same link, you'll also find our brand new Service 95 website. It contains all the back issues of our newsletters. You can tell I'm very excited. So please comb through the archives, read the wonderful stories we published this year, and let us know what you think. I want to end by sending you all my love and gratitude for joining me for the second season of Dua Lipa at Your Service. I can't begin to tell each and every one of you how much it's meant to hear your feedback about what you've loved, which conversations have stood out to you, and which guests inspired you the way they inspired me. It's been an absolutely full-on year for all of us in so many ways, but I'm so glad to have had this podcast as a constant source of joy for me, and I hope for you as well. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd be really grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app, because that really helps other people find it too. Thank you again so much for listening and stay tuned for more at your service very soon. In the meantime, happy holidays and I hope you have a very happy new year.